Hello everyone and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSightNews.com. My name is Jonathan Van Maren and one of the themes that you, the listeners, as well as the readers at LifeSight have talked about probably the most frequently over the past couple of years is how do people raise their kids during an age when the entire culture has turned against us? In so many ways, the culture is hostile on every front. Just this week, at LifeSite, I have an article talking about the ways in which the entertainment industry, the entertainment industry aimed at children, has been totally colonized by the LGBT movement. But there's also a fascinating article in the National Review just this past month explaining that of all of the different theories of secularization, all of the different reasons that North America and the West more generally became godless, one of the primary culprits for this secularization is the secular public education system. In other words, if you remove that one factor from the equation, you do not see the United States, you do not see other Western countries becoming secular at the lightning fast pace that they did, creating this new historical moment that is as of yet unprecedented and that we do not yet know, that we do not yet totally understand. We don't know what's What's coming next? So to discuss the education system and the public education system specifically, I had a conversation with Jeremy S. Adams, who has a new book out with Regnery Press this year called Hollowed Out, A Warning About America's Next Generation. Jeremy S. Adams is not just an intellectual. He is a teacher, both at the high school and the college levels, and he has spent decades trying to instill wisdom, ambition, and a love of learning in his students. And yet, he notes in the book, when teachers get together, they often share an arresting conclusion. Something has gone terribly wrong. Something essential is missing in our young people. And so Jeremy joined me to discuss the crisis among our youth and why the education system is one of the key culprits in this. I guess I just want to start off by uh, getting you to introduce yourself to to our listeners here for a moment. So education is a subject that we've covered quite a bit on this podcast because it intersects with all the life and family issues that we that we talk about on the show. And so I guess what what would what perspective do you come at this from? Why did why did you write a book on on the American education system? Well, I've been a teacher for almost a quarter of a century, uh, a classroom teacher. I teach political science and world histories starting my 23rd year in two or three weeks. I've been teaching at a public university for 15 years. So I'm coming at it from a position of real world experience. And, you know, typically when somebody has kind of the itch to write a really ambitious book that makes a humongous claim like, hey, there is a profoundly big Titanic problem coming our way in this country, and you guys need to pay attention. You know, typically that is written by a giant of the culture, you know, a a politician or a pundit or uh, an Instagram influencer or somebody who works at the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. But I'm coming at this from the perspective of if if you want to see a front row seat to American decline, don't listen to a, a Twitter uh, trendsetter, uh, listen to somebody who is in the trenches every day, and that's a classroom teacher like myself. What we see 
is very different than what, you know, perhaps somebody who works at a news network or a, at a university sees. Maybe compare this book to something for us. Uh, it was last year, I believe, that we had uh, Dr. Mark Bauerline on the show. He wrote The Dumbest Generation, Don't Trust Anybody Under 30, which was kind of a modern update to the famous uh, The Closing of the American Mind uh, by Alan Bloom. So where does Hold outfit on sort of the, the grand scale of books on the American education system? Well, first of all, thank you for uh, putting me in that kind of a company. That is high praise. Uh, you know, The Closing of the American Mind was a very influential book when I was in college. Uh, and I had, it was written, I believe, in 1987. It was one of those books that a lot of people bought and not a lot of people read because it is so erudite. And Alan Bloom is one of the great political philosophers of our time, you know, coming out of the University of Chicago and, and Toronto at one point and Cornell. You know, Hollowed Out is, I think there's a lot of philosophy in there. And I, I hope that we get to talk about that a little bit today. And a lot of my other media appearances, you don't want to get to talk about it that much. But, but Hollowed Out is really starts with kind of the anecdote of the classroom, where in the last five to 10 years, you know, those of us who are teaching, you know, everyday normal Americans, you know, we teachers are looking at each other and saying, what they're saying and the way that these kids are spending their time and their views of the country and of life and of marriage and religion and morality, it, it, there's a there's a disturbing pivot in our culture and in our schools and in our country. And so, you know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, a lot of my teacher friends and I, we look at each other and, you know, we'll, we'll read some think piece in The Atlantic or something in The New Yorker or, you know, National Review and, you know, and I have respect for all of these publications, but sometimes we want to look at each other and say, you're a little late to the party, people. We've been seeing these trends in the trenches of the American classroom for a year or two. And, and that's why, you know, I, this book, Hollowed Out, is essentially an attempt by somebody who defines himself as a teacher. I mean, my, my, both of my parents were teachers. I, I will always be a teacher. There's no other career I want to have. But I feel like it's up to us. It's up to the teachers of America to wave our hands and yell out, something is deeply, profoundly, colossally wrong here in the way that young people spend their time, the way they, their value system, all the things that we can get on, uh, into today on this podcast. But that's how I, you know, that's how I, 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 I kind of look at Hollowed Out as it's, it, it starts anecdotally. But yes, there's a lot of research and yes, there's a fair bit of philosophy as well. Let's start off by dispensing with uh, what I'm sure is going to be one of the primary critiques, which is just that this is yet another book written by a conservative, published by Regnery, a conservative publishing house, complaining that the kids are not okay and that everybody's getting dumber. And, and to some extent, you know, that this book has been written before because, so I, I, I actually, I collect old books and I have a lot of the old McGuffey's readers from the late 1800s and the early 1900s. And it's true when you read the sorts of things kids had to know and memorize back then, there's no comparison uh, to now. And there's no comparison to 20, 30 years ago, for that matter. So we've seen education evolve, especially as education became public education, and especially as priorities in education change. So just to dispense with this one critique, that this is another curmudgeonly condemnation of the public education system, maybe share a bit of your philosophy of education and then distinguish your work from those previous works, despite the fact that I would actually agree with most of those previous works. Yeah, absolutely. I would like to push back against that and push back against that hard. You know, when you when you spend a few years of your life on a project and you, I mean, I, let me just be perfectly blunt with you. 
I, you know, and, and this might sound kind of odd, but I do feel that everything I've ever done in my career, every student I've taught, every class that I've, I've been in front of has led me to this intersection. And so I'm not just a crank. I'm not just a curmudgeon. First of all, I'm too young to be a crank or a curmudgeon. I just turned 45. Thank you very much. But I would tell you that this is not just another generation looking at the youngins and saying, oh, well, you know, the world's going to go to hell because uh, they don't live their lives the way that previous generations have. You will notice when you read Hollowed Out that these are recent pivots. So when I talk about uh, a lot of the changes taking place, this is, this is not a rehash of the 1980s where you have books like, you know, entertaining ourselves to death. No, something is qualitatively different today. So let me give you an example. If you look at the amount of, of anxiety in young people, if you look at the amount of self-harm, if you look at the amount of suicide, these numbers have gone up over 50% in just the last eight years. Half of all 18 to 35-year-olds don't have a romantic partner. That's new. One out of five millennials say that they don't have a good friend in the entire world. That is new. The desire for marriage and family, it has been slowly in decline, and now it's falling off a cliff. That is new. And what's really new, and this is what's unique, and I hope everybody listening to this podcast, this is, this is what's really different. Our young people live in an entirely different ecosystem of reality than people in ages past. Our young people spend up to nine or 10 hours a day on their devices. And by the way, that's before the pandemic, right? Who knows exactly what the numbers are now? Nine or 10 hours a day, they are on these devices. I know this is a podcast. Nobody sees what I'm doing, but I'm waving my phone right now. Okay. And what does that mean? That means that they're not dating. They're not reading books. They're not going to the movies. They're not going uh, to football games. That is new. And, and that's, you know, what's interesting is kind of the, the MO of my book is, you know, you'll, you'll talk to your students. And, you know, I, I teach this wide mosaic, this beautiful mosaic of students. I mean, they come from all backgrounds. And that's what's great about the school where I teach is that it really is, you know, it, it embodies that idea of e pluribus unum, out of many we are one. And you talk to them, and all of a sudden you'll realize this, this, is, this is different. And I've, and I've taught now long enough. This is my 23rd year. I can tell you things in year 23 are profoundly different than they were in year five, six, or seven. You know, you have these shocking moments. Like I'll never forget this one a few years ago where I was talking about Easter vacation. And one of the kids looked kind of confused by it. And I said, oh, well, you know, spring vacation. And so I mentioned, I, I, I don't remember exactly how we came about in the conversation, but I used the word resurrection. And some of them look kind of confused. And I teach bright people, by the way. I teach some of the advanced classes. And I will never forget the fact that about, and I'm being generous, maybe half of my students even knew what the resurrection was, had no idea what Easter represented as a holiday. They thought that it was Easter bunnies and the weather getting warmer. And, and that, again, 20 years ago, they knew what Easter was. So no, I'm not a crank. I'm not a curmudgeon. These are recent pivots and we need to get ahead of the, the game. Okay, before we get into the details of, of your findings and haul it out, and before we start talking about, I think, the very key issue of technology and the digitization of childhood, I want to get one, one other potential critique out of the way, which is just that one of the things I got from Hollowed Out, and one of the things that I, th I think is true to a degree, is that the, the school system is also attempting to deal with a culture that's kind of disintegrating around us. So when you're talking about self-harm, when you're talking, you know, about, about levels of anxiety and depression, 
Yes, it's true that, you know, there's cyberbullying, you know, there's, there's lives being lived almost entirely on the internet. It's almost impossible to get away from your peers. However, it's also true that the disintegration of the family over the last 50 years just means the cumulative effect of family breakdown is, is, is now much, much di more difficult for educators like yourself to grapple with than it was 20 years ago because those processes have moved farther on down the line. And, I, and so I've done a lot of research in, in, into, into internet porn use and, and to the digitization of relationships as well. There's all sorts of horrifying data now on, on kids who are engaging in oral sex before kissing and holding hands and, and other sort of passe relationship things. But one of the things I also think is interesting is, is a lot of people, in my experience, are, are less interested in relationships and marriages because, A, those relationships and marriages haven't been modeled for them, uh, and B, what they've seen is a string of broken marriages. They've seen mom bring home new boyfriends, which can often be uncomfortable or even dangerous for daughters in the house. Uh, they've seen their parents' energy almost completely oriented outwards towards new sexual partners or, or, or new intimate partners. And, and then getting shuffled from house to house while the parents persuade themselves that this is what my kids would want because my kids want me to be happy when their kids really just want them to be family. So to give you a chance to finally respond to that little monologue, to what extent is what you're seeing right now a new thing brought on by the digitization of, of childhood? And to what extent is it just a continuation of a phenomenon that began in the late 1970s and is now reaching a cumulative effect now? Yeah, that is so much to unwrap. A great question. There is no question that there is a synthesis happening between the unraveling of the American family and the digitalization of, of life for young people. It is a fact. It is a fact that young people are going to be socialized at a certain age. They will absorb certain values. They will start to adulate certain behaviors. And human beings, you know, the best professor I ever had in college had this great quote where he said, human beings, you know, learn by example. And we're either improved or depraved by the examples in front of us. And that's, that's true. And when you look at the absence, and this is a big part of hollowed out, it, 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 I, I don't have a vocabulary. I don't have powers of description powerful or potent enough to describe the extent to which young people today are growing up untethered to adult life. They are not around adults the way that human beings have been for centuries. They are not around adult values, adult behaviors, adult expectations. Although they are around adult entertainment. They are. And, but this is what I was going to say. Is, is, so there's, there's a void, right? There is a void. And so what happens is, is, is the things that they are looking at on their phones or for nine or 10 hours a day, that, that, that becomes the influence that, that really shapes a worldview. You know, this idea that some people, that young people have sometimes, that there's really you know, that, that as time goes on, our worldview only gets better. And that somehow in 2021, we have reached peak human consciousness is one of the most distressing and annoying habits of young people. That it's just not, not, not simply true. And, you know, I, what you said was very powerful because I, can I, can I want to tell a story about, I'll never forget the story about a, a young man and he was, he had really good grades. And then all of a sudden things went south and I, I asked him, I said, you know, what's, what's going on? And, you know, he would tell these, these stories about he, he in the home would have to stand up for his mother and for his sisters because there was a physical abuse of a boyfriend going on in the home. I, I think to the everyday average American, if you understood 
the lives that young people are living. If you understood, I mean, another thing, and not only do they not know what Easter is, I use the phrase, and this goes to your point, I think, really well. I used the phrase, the family meal, a few years ago. And once again, a lot of the kids just kind of looked at me like they didn't know what I was talking about. And I said, you know, the family meal, you know, at night at dinner, we're, we're, you know, mom and dad come and they put food on the table and you talk about your day. You should have seen the look on their face. They had no idea what I was talking about. Uh, and I said, well, how, what do you do at night? And they said, well, you know, I go into the kitchen, I get my food. And then my mom or, or my dad, they get their food and, and, and they sit on the couch or they go to their room or I go to my room. And, and that kind of, you know, that tissue, essentially, that, that connective tissue that used to put young people into connection with modeling adulthood. What does it look like to be a good man or a good woman? What does it look like to be a father, a friend, a citizen, a Christian? What does it look like? They simply aren't observing it. And here's the other phenomenon to go to your question. We are now seeing a lot of distracted parenting. You know, parents who they are physically there, but they're not emotionally present. And not only that, the studies show that when you uh, are constantly distracted, when the parents are distracted with their technology, they're not as patient and they kind of overcorrect when it comes to punishment. Now, this is this is really interesting because there's there so many things to work through just because I've often said, actually, that, that so I, was, I was born in 1988, that our parents raised us for a world that didn't exist by the time that we, 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 we got to that point that, you know, when, you know, when my dad told me not to look at porn, for example, he was referring to Playboy magazine. Well, you know, by the time I was a teenager, you know, like Playboy magazines were literally being sold in antique shops and, and antiquarian bookstores. And I'm, I'm not even joking. I've, I've seen this. And so one of the things that's, that's really, really interesting is there's, there's a couple of divides. And I think one, a lot of parents have had difficulty staving off the digitization of childhood because they themselves are also hooked on their phones and, and and for everybody it's different right for moms like oh I, I find a lot of people are more interested in posting the perfect picture of their kids than spending time uh with their kids for myself as a political junkie there's a reason the word junkie um comes after political and it's also since you know the, the trump era torqued everything you know when when you know things would be unfolding live on twitter right you didn't even just for me i you don't just get the newspaper you don't just you know, catch the news at the end of the day, right? The, the number of, of events I've seen happening live because somebody messaged me and said like, look, this is unfolding right now. And you could watch it unfold. Like some, somebody somewhere is live streaming everything at all times, right? There's that joke about the internet. Can I interest you in everything all the time? And that's basically what it is. And as an adult, I struggle to ensure that I'm not spending too much time on, on my device. The idea that we would expect kids with their still, still developing brains to be able to moderate something that adults suck at, to me, is, is just completely insane. And there's a combination of, of really bizarre optimism that we're going to hand these kids devices that they could use to destroy their own lives and also, these devices are really convenient for me because I don't have my own life together. Maybe my relationships aren't doing great. I'm dating. Uh, and these devices more or less babysit them, despite the fact that these devices are portals to other people, which basically means that when we give them, somebody, uh, them a phone, we are asking other people to babysit our kids without checking to see who those people are. And half the time, it's Pornhub. Or Snapchat, or you know, or, or their peers, for that matter. Which, as you know, somebody who was that age and had peers, I think is a terrible idea. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the adults themselves are having these problems. I, I, I'll tell you right now, I guilty as charged. 
my wife, guilty as charged. We, you know, if for anybody who thinks that I'm writing this book as a way of saying, you need to do what I've done in the home. I'll be honest, there's really two pillars of this book when it comes to frustration. Pillar number one is Mr. Adams, teacher for almost a quarter of a century, seeing these sudden disturbing changes. Pillar number two is dad, raising two teenage daughters and being absolutely sick and tired of having to fight my culture and my country in order to raise well-adjusted human beings. So I don't want anybody out there to think, well, this guy is very sanctimonious and he's telling us to do what he's did. No, a lot of this is my frustration with myself. And by the way, if anybody thinks that this is a book criticizing young people, it's not. As you said, they're young people. They are children. They accept the world that they are born into. And it's up to the adults to make sure that we mold a world in which they absorb the values, which will allow them to lead a meaningful life. It's up to us. So if there's criticism in the book, it's, it's you and me, my friend. And by the way, you're ridiculously young. When you say that. The, po- the point that I want to make there too is, 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 so I understand that adults are frustrated with a generation that they can't understand because they're, the young people are fundamentally inhabiting a different world than they did. The point I'd like to make is that this world was built by adults. Right. You know what? It was it was like unscrupulous neuroscientists working for social media giants who developed the various notifications to make sure your kid stays glued to a screen longer. And so maybe because we screwed this up, it's our job to figure out some way to a help kids navigate it or B maybe not give them the loaded gun they can use to destroy themselves before they're old enough to drive. Exactly. I mean, you, you have that little dopamine every time, you know, somebody texts you or the algorithm algorithms that decide, you know, based upon what you've watched before, you'll keep watching the same thing over and over again. The fact that video games are designed to make it so that you go berserk. In my house, you know, we, we talk about Fortnite fever, where if you've played too long, you know, your brain just goes to mush and you and you and you absolutely freak out. You're right. This is a world designed by adults. And, and, and that means we have culpability. I, I would say a few other things, by the way. You know, yes, it's designed by the adults, but, but I will tell you that I see, you know, the biggest problem is that we just simply don't have good role models for what substantive adulthood looks like. And, and you know, in the book, I have, I found a number of, I think, very powerful demonstrations of this where people who know better still can't resist, you know, the, 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 the power and allure of technology. I remember being absolutely shocked by, I think it was in the Atlantic, there was a journalist who talked about how when he watches Game of Thrones or Breaking Bad or something like that, he watches the whole thing on fast forward, right? He does it, you know, at one and a half time or double time because literally his brain cannot just be at rest, right? He won't let it roam. There was a really powerful article in the Washington Post uh, a few years ago where this, this author talked about how, you know, he loves to read. He considers himself to be a, a classically educated guy. But even he, when he's reading, you know, a long form essay, he's looking on the side to see how much more he has. He gets distracted by the hyperlinks, right? So, so yeah, we adults designed the world, but we are also falling prey to it as well. And, you know, just to kind of extend what you're saying into the classroom, something I have noticed in the last year or two, you know, we have these, do you know what a Chromebook is? Do you know what Chromebooks are? Yeah, so what a lot of teachers are noticing is it used to be that, you know, you would, now I'm, I'm a very traditional teacher. I, you can probably tell I, I like to talk to my students, a lot of lecture, a lot of discussion. You know, the humanity of the classroom is why I, I, I'm the luckiest person in the world. I love what I do. Uh, but, you know, there are some teachers who, you know, they, they will give, you know, kind of working class. They used to give packets. And it used to be that, you know, if the kids finished early, they would get rowdy, they would talk, they would flirt, they would gossip. And what you see nowadays is at the end of class, 
you know, we give these devices, it's not just the parents, now it's in, in schools, we give these Chromebooks to kids because not just do we think it's cool to put all the material online, but we know that at the end of it, if they still have the Chromebook, they're not going to be rowdy. They're not going to be flirting. They're not going to be running around. They just go and they self-medicate. Or they're doing all three of those things. They're just doing it online in a way that can't be supervised or observed by adults, right? Bullying's happening online. Flirting's happening online. Sexting's happening online. And so a lot of these behaviors are now just impervious from adult oversight. That, that is, that's brilliant. That is a brilliant point. And that's, that's, a, that's a point I, I've tried to make in the book. Thank you for saying that. Uh, you know, we, you, you asked a minute ago about, you know, isn't this just like an, another curmudgeon book, like, you know, the 80s? Well, no, I would tell you that this is the first generation in the history of the world who has found a way to create their own ecosystem of interaction and absorption without any, they found a way to do it without adult eyes, without adult influences. You know, my, my, my middle child, who's going to be a junior in high school this year, you know, we were talking about the fact that she said, look, you adults, you parents, you are so far behind on the technology. You have no idea how much we hide. You, we can, we can, you know, we, we have, you think that because you're following me on Instagram, dad, that you're, you know, being a good parent, guess what? I might have three or four accounts. I might have something called Finsta. I might have a spam account. I can hide things on my phone. And there's, there was even something a few years ago called the mosquito ring where young ears could hear this ring, but older ears could not. And so I would say that again, what is unique about this hollowed out generation is that, like you said, that is so true. They have found a way to make it so that there is a perpetual space where adults never intrude because they, they don't have a key to the kingdom. They wouldn't, it's not that they don't want to be there. They just simply don't know how to gain entry. There was a, a passage in the, in the book where there was a, a, I think it was a dean from a high school in Arkansas. And he was a little bit of a Facebook sensation a year or two ago because he said, look, I, I, I confiscate these cell phones. And we're talking about 13, 14, 15-year-olds. And he said, the filth, the vulgarity, the, the, the violence, he's, the, the utter disregard for any norms or decency. He's like, when I tell the parents or show the parents, they are utterly shocked. And that's because we need to start to understand the extent to which our children are being socialized in your life. And you're right. All these things are still happening. The flirting, the learning, all of this stuff. But it's happening in the space completely divorced from traditional values and traditional parental oversight. I want to do a couple of things here because I, I want to get into an analysis of, of a lot of the things you cover in the book, but um, I want to know what you think of, of my pet theory that I've come to reluctantly, which is that basically for all the reasons you just said, the fact that there's new social media platforms that are, are, are developing, or I should say metastasizing almost hourly, the fact that it's virtually impossible for, for even a full-time parent to keep track of what's going on online, to, to, to police kids who grew up with technology as their first language, not their second language, meaning that you're never going to be as fluent as they are, and you're never going to be able to stop them from hiding their activity. I actually think that at this point, the only way to do it is to delay giving them a smartphone, because once you've given them a smartphone, it's more or less impossible to police what they're doing. And instead, what you have to do is you basically just have to rely on your influence. You have to rely on their good judgment. And look, like kids are kids. And so I've had so many parents say to me, you know, my kid's a pretty smart kid. I'm like, no, your kid's a kid. Um, the kid there is no such thing as a smart kid. And even a smart kid doesn't have any wisdom yet. Like the Bible says nothing nice 
about young people in terms of their ability to discern? And why would you like, why would you allow them into Aladdin's pornographic cave of wonders? And then assume based on bad theology, bad insight, and a bad understanding of human nature, that your kid is going to be the one kid who won't fall prey to all of this, or that they're not going to get things sent to them, or they're not going to get tangled up in these, these social webs that are impervious to adult oversight and yet exist right? Because I'm so sick of reading news stories where some kid gets caught sexting underage, where some kid ends up in court, where another kid kills themselves during the cyberbullying. And there's one line in every single stupid article, which is, I can't believe it was my kid. You know, somewhere around the 5,000th rendition of this, uh, you should have been like, of course, it's your kid. It's all kids. You know, there are almost, I'm sure there are exceptions. For those of you listening, probably not your kid. And so I really just think that, that giving a kid a smartphone in grade six, seven, eight, nine, you know, is the equivalent of giving them a car. Yeah, they're going to need one eventually. Yeah, it's a very useful tool, but they're just not, they're not ready for it yet. That is, I, I completely agree. And I, I would just kind of maybe rephrase it a little bit. That last part about the car keys, I think one of the big problems we have in our society today is that we're more than willing to give the car keys before the kids have the license. And we do that with regards to freedom. Young people want to make decisions and they want to use their freedom. And yet they have no wisdom or no guidance on how to use their freedom well. And, and I, right now in my brain, I'm debating about how personal I should get because, you know, I kind of felt a, a resonation within my chest when you talked about giving cell phones to kids who are 12, 13, 14 and the changes that that undertakes. I, I've lived through this and, and forgive me if I get a little emotional because you know, my daughter, my oldest daughter, who is going away to college in less than three weeks, so I'm a very proud but getting ready to be emotional dad, you know, it was just such a mistake to give her a phone when she was in junior high. When she was in elementary school, she set the record for the most number of pages read in a quarter at her school. I think the record still stands. And, and yet I gave her a phone, and then I started to realize, you know, I used to see her reading all the time. And then that stopped. You know, one of the most disturbing statistics, because I'm, I, I'm probably like you, I'm a bibliophile. I love, I love books. I live for books. I can't say enough good things about books. How's this for a disturbing statistic? Young Americans today are more likely to be reading books at the age of 13 than the age of 17. I mean, that, it, that says it all. We all know what's displacing that. And the answer is their devices and nothing else that's good on those devices. And, and so when you look at that, I look at, I look at, you know, kind of her, her lack of reading. And then I don't know how political you want to get here, but then, you know, she started having these really out there political opinions. And, and, and again, I'm, I'm kind of a bleeding heart, kind of, you know, middle right. I'm not on either extreme to be perfectly honest with you. And she all of a sudden, you know, didn't believe in the United States, didn't believe in classical liberalism, believed that it would have been better if the United States never would have existed, you know, was, was demonstrating the one habit I hate the most in young people, which is a complete inability to understand that people 50 or 100 or 200 years ago did different things because they had completely different worldviews. And 2021 is not the end of our evolutionary story. And age 15 isn't the end of your evolutionary story. No, exactly. And by the way, you know, I'm 45 and I'm a lot different than I was at 35. You know, I have a lot different views and and I act differently. And I, I pray to God that at 55, I'm a better man than I am today. But you're right. There's this kind of static certitude that young people have. And that's, of course, because they're watching the same video over and over again with the same message that it's an echo chamber of epic proportions. And so I'm a little emotional right now because what you're describing is what I, I've lived through. 
And, and I wish I could tell you that I'm, I'm perfect with it now. I'm not. But yeah, this idea that the only way is to delay the smartphones, it's hard. It's difficult because smartphones give freedom to adults, right? It gives us time. Oh, hey, they're watching something. That means we don't have to, you know, I can watch what I want to watch now. And so it's hard. There's no way around it. There's no shortcut. Yeah, I, I want to be really clear that uh, I'm not attempting to be judgmental. I have like my, my, I've got two kids. My oldest is four years old. I've raised exactly zero 13 year olds. And so, so I'm not, I'm not saying I'll do any better, but what I'm saying is there's certain basic truths about human beings that I feel like people have forgotten. I've given a lot of presentations in different schools and I always find the pushback I get on what's what, what I think to be really obvious facts from people. That's obviously just a defensiveness. Like I want my kids to have a phone or often I'm so sick of fighting with my kid about not giving them a phone, which I totally understand. But if you would ask, so this is a very different generation. We live in a very different world. We live in a, di- in, in a digital world. There was a recent uh, set of data that came out discussing the number of people who have just straight up said they would rather live online than they would in the, in the real world. But, if, but here's something that I think is consistent. If you would ask any educator, you know, so from Plato onwards, like let's start before Christ and move all the way till now and said, if you've got kids and they have two options, they can learn things and explore ideas, or they can have access to sexual content um, of any sort. Like, I don't think this is, it's new information. I don't, I, I, like, one of the reasons ancient cultures policed sexuality is because everybody has recognized for all time that if you give young people that, that option, they're always going to pick the sexual content maybe always is an exaggeration, but you know, it's hard enough for teachers to try and pound math into people's heads while their hormones are exploding. Now give them the option of torquing their brain with the most toxic sexual content in human history every single night for hours all the time, and then see how easy that is, right? Like a lot of this doesn't take a, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out what's going on here. Like it seems really obvious that if you've got a 14 year old boy and he's got, you know, Huckleberry Finn or Tom Sawyer or To Kill a Mockingbird, or he's got endless breasts on his on his phone screen. Like, this is not like this is really easy to figure out. You know, he's he's a he's a teenage boy, and he doesn't even have to be a bad teenage boy. Like, he can be a smart teenage boy and a good teenage boy. But like, why are you giving him that choice, right? J.D. Unwin wrote Sex and Culture, or produced Sex and Culture in 1934, and he examined over 80, 80 cultures, and in every instance, he found cultures that didn't police sexuality eventually collapsed for all of the reasons that we're just discussing. You actually have just stumbled on the kind of the, the big idea of Hollowed Out. Uh, and, and the big idea of hollow, Hollowed Out is that human beings really don't change over time. That at the end of the day, we reach fulfillment in the same basic ways that we always have. Yes, our technology is different. Yes, we're a little wealthier. Yes, we live in these, you know, kind of liberal commercial societies. But at the end of the day, you know, you talk a lot about the Greeks, you know, and the Greeks talked about the good life. Aristotle talks a lot in his ethics about human flourishing. And I would argue that we reach human flourishing essentially the same way today than we did two or 3,000 years ago. And that's what alarms me so much is that, you know, I talked about how young people want the car keys without the license. Well, what we used to do is we used to we understood that the beauty of liberal democracy, the, the, the beauty of our way of life here in the West is that 
we are not destined by our biology or our class or by immutable traits of our birth to live a certain kind of life, that we are imbued with freedom and therefore we can connect to whatever we want to connect to. And because we're choosing it, it's meaningful. I get to love who I want to love. I get to worship who I want to worship. I get to live where I want to live. I get to spend my time the way I want to spend it. And so we have this basic idea of individual liberty, which is that life is meaningful when you get to freely choose what to connect yourselves to. And yet the reason our young people are hollowed out today is that they have, have essentially been seduced into this cult of radical individualism, which would argue that the road to happiness is not about connecting yourselves to relationships and values and behaviors that have always led to human flourishing. No, 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 no. A lot of young people today believe that they simply stop at, let me do what I want to do, that my desires uh, and my passions, if I can freely indulge them, then I will be happy. And, and you're absolutely right. There's not a single philosophy in the world that has ever argued that you are going to reach happiness or contentment by not domesticating your passions. You, 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 know, you can talk everything from the Sermon on the Mount to Plato's theory of the beautiful soul. Over and over again, we have reason, we have desire, we have pride. And, and, if, and, and if you believe in a radical, egalit- a radical individualism, then you believe that all of them should just be given free reign. The real distinction here is I wonder how many people could distinguish between pleasure and happiness. Exactly, exactly. It is that, well, of course, or, or I would say, what's the difference between pleasure and joy? I think joy is an even more kind of spiritual distinction there. Well, if you're going to use that phrase, it reminds me of what C.S. Lewis said when he said that entertainment is the devil substitute for joy. That's exactly right. And it's kind of like, and I don't know if you're talking about the the abolition of man, but C.S. Lewis in in the same place, I think he has this great analogy where he says, look, nobody likes to study Greek grammar. It's no fun. It's absolutely awful. But the child who's doing their grammar exercises cannot possibly comprehend the splendor, the sublime joy that somebody would experience reading Homer in the ancient Greek. You know, Thomas Jefferson said that is the the most sublime experience ever is, is reading Homer in the original Greek. The greatest professor I ever had spent years of his life mastering ancient Greek so he could read Aristotle. And so just as that kid doesn't understand why they're having to do Greek exercises, same thing. Here's right and wrong, kids. You'll understand later. Aristotle was very clear. You teach right and wrong first. Y- you, you don't argue. When kids will say, well, why, why do I have to do this? I'm not going to explain it. You'll understand later. For now, follow the rules. Or something will happen. Like, I remember the, the, the first time I got truly angry at my little daughter is because she ran for the road. And, you know, the road in front of our house is an 80 kilometer or 80 kilometer an hour speed limit. And I didn't have time to explain to her. I yelled at her to stop. She ran for the road. If she got hit by a car, she would have been dead. Right. Like at a certain age, you don't have time to explain all of the whys. You just have to take somebody's word for it. And the Internet has done a bunch of things. It's made everybody think their opinion is, 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 is worth it all the time. Everybody needs to hear it. There's this egalitarianism and the death of expertise that, that means that we just find who we want to listen to and, and, and then we listen to them. Like I am very relieved that I didn't get social media until I was in university. And even then, Facebook memories is this thing that sort of haunts me because it constantly pops up. And even when I don't disagree with the take that I had then, it's worded stupidly and it's worded brashly. And I wish that I hadn't said it that way. And I feel sorry for, for kids now because they don't really have a chance. Like you mentioned, uh, 
You mentioned reading Homer in the original Greek. I remember uh, trying to struggle through War and Peace by Tolstoy because somebody said, I wish, um, I wish that I could be reborn just so that I could read War and Peace again was I think the greatest reviewer. Well, these books take a lot of commitment. And again, I'm, I used to be able to read for three, four hours in one stretch without even, without, without looking up. The, first, the only time I've been able to do that in the last couple of years without checking to see what's going on is A, if I leave my smartphone in a different room, because the other dangerous thing is when you read a lot of uh, nonfiction, I'm constantly checking things out. That's an interesting fact. Or like, you know, a historical figure will be mentioned. I'll Google that figure. You know, you spend 15 minutes on your phone before you know it, because there's an endless number of rabbit holes available to you. It's actually when I went to Africa and there, we had no service. It was the first time I sat down and I read a big fat book from cover to cover. And I emerged on the other side, almost breathless, like, oh, I can still do that. And, and I can get so immersed in a book I didn't even notice. And what bugs me is because, I, because I'm sort of on the cusp, right? I graduated high school in 2006. The first iPhone came out in 2007. So my like childhood and adolescence and young adulthood kind of straddles this. And so I still remember what life was like, you know, capital B before the smartphone invaded more or less everything. And I find that that sort of straddling perspective really, really interesting because of the number of experiences I had that were normal to me that I don't see kids having now. Like, for example, losing track of time because you're reading a book. Like the kids now, the average age of first exposure to hardcore porn is age nine, right? And so, so like, is holding hands ever going to give them a thrill, right? When you like, you hold hands for the first time, it's a really big deal. I'm sure you remember it. I remember it vividly the very, very first time because it's a big deal. It's not a big deal if you got introduced, as one kid told me, to gangbangs at age 10. Like that's your first exposure to sexuality because, you know, what's on the front page of Pornhub right now? And so like to a large degree, I think, we think we're giving our kids everything by giving them the stuff, but we're actually robbing them of the basics of childhood that they will n- not just never get back, that they will never get. Like these are, just, these are experiences that, they, that are irretrievable once you lose the ability and the capacity to have them. Absolutely right. There is a, there is a magic uh, to childhood. There is a, you know, an innocence to it that, you know, it's interesting, you know, if you read Wordsworth, you know, Wordsworth is always, you know, searching for something that's going to give him a sense of meaning and purpose in, in his life. And he realizes it's the innocence of childhood, this kind of moral purity that's going to be the foundation of a meaningful life. If you read Tolstoy, he, you know, he rewrites the Gospels. They're called the Gospels in brief. And he says, you know, you should read the Gospels as a childhood. There, there is wisdom in a soul that has not been corrupted. And, and we forget that. And a few things I'll say to your, your point here. First of all, you're right. You're, you're talking about the death of authority. One of the reasons why young people are hollowed out is because why would they listen to anybody but themselves? Because they've, they've bought into this very thin radical subjectivism, this postmodernism that is really indistinguishable from total nihilism when it comes to, to ethics and personal behavior. And so, and you see it, by the way, in our culture, you see it in education where we infantilize kids, where we, you know, where the adults love to say, oh, well, the young people, they get it in a way that old people don't. They're on the cutting edge of justice. They're on the cutting edge of understanding why socialism is better than capitalism. And, and I think infantilizing everybody and, and essentially giving the power to the young people to dictate, you know, what's hip and chic and cool is toxic in the extreme because when i was a kid you know where i looked for wisdom my mom my dad the church we went to our family friends 
our teachers. And you know what I believe? I believe that they understood something and they had read things and done things that I would need in order to live a good life. And so I saw them in positions of authority. Nowadays, all we do is tell kids how great they are when they're 12 or 15, completely unformed. Well, and, and grandparents as well. Like I remember this, it was a couple of years ago and I was at a mo- my uh, grandmother's house and I saw a couple of, of, of her younger grandkids on their phone. And I remember thinking to myself, like she lived through the liberation of the Netherlands. And if you ask her, she can tell you what it was like to see the tanks and, and to see what actually took place at the end of World War II, this, you know, like epic historical event, which lives on in her memory. And you're on your phone you know, to see what kids who have experienced nothing and the things that they do know aren't true, as Reagan famously put it. And, and, and you're just, you're missing this opportunity. And so maybe to give, to give all the listeners a summary, since this conversation kind of took off like a horse that got, that got, got slapped on the flanks, what would, we, we've covered a lot of what you cover in, in, in Hollow Hill, but I guess give your, 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 in short version, your grim analysis of that, which we haven't covered in the last 45 minutes, but also a couple of the things that you think we should do moving forward. Because I, I agree with, with your analysis. I think that there's a lot of really interesting stuff in Hollowed Out. I think it's a really necessary read for, for parents who are really clueless and are convincing themselves that their kids are different. It's funny, you know, like liberal parents will be like, my kid's a special snowflake. Conservative parents are like, they're a good kid, but it amounts to the same thing. It amounts to letting them run wild and and get influenced by the culture uh, through technology. So maybe give us the problem and the answer as laid out in your book. So much. First of all, I agree. I, I could, we, you know, I, I know you don't do this Joe Rogan style, but we could go on for a long time. This has been thoroughly enjoyable. I would say, you know, as far as what is the bottom line? The bottom line is this. The bottom line is that young Americans, I would even say probably a lot of, a lot of you know, you're in Canada up there. A lot, of, a lot of people in the West are hollowed out because they have not been tethered to the values the behaviors and the traditions that have always led to a meaningful life. And by and large, the adults in our society, and this is my number, you know, the first solution, the adults have to start adulting again. We have to insist that we put ourselves in their emotional and physical spaces once again. The second thing we need to do uh, is we need to, as I said before, we need to make sure that kids have a license before we give them the keys. The, 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 The end goal is not freedom. Right? The, the end goal is meaning and purpose and joy and justice when it comes to being a citizen. You know, at the end of the day, there's very little difference between liberty and licentiousness, licentiousness unless you use your freedom for a kind of higher goal than simple self-indulgence. The third thing, and we didn't even get into politics and the fact that you know, most of my students, well, my students, young people today, are the least patriotic Americans in American history by far. One in five Americans uh, and millennials see the, the flag as a symbol of hate. There was a poll a few years ago where, where socialism had a higher favorability among 18 to 29-year-olds. And one of the things we have to teach our young people is that you can be patriotic without believing that your country is perfect, that, that, that patriotism is not a declaration of perfection. In fact, I'm, I'm a big believer that we should absolutely be aware of all the mistakes that, that, that we have made. We should own up to that. We should study. I didn't know anything about Tulsa. I didn't know anything about Juneteenth. And I'm better now that I do know about it. Chesterton, just insert there, Chesterton said that nationalism is like, you, you, means you, you say your country's best the same way that you say your grandmother's best. It's not because you believe she's the best. It's because she's yours. Right. And, and, there's, and there's reason to have genuine affection. And I would, I would also say as a, as a political science teacher, 
you know, one of the things that does worry me is that, you know, as Lincoln said, the United States of America is based on a proposition. We are a propositional nation. And if young people don't know what the proposition is, or they're told not to believe it, if they don't believe in natural law, you know, it's interesting, our our young people today, they believe in political morality, but not individual morality, which is, you know, one of the quirks of their their worldview. Two more uh, things I would say. Make sure, you know, I would say that young people need to live in in a world where traditional aspirations are defended. It is good to have a family. It is good to have deep friendships. It is good to know about the different religious options. We didn't talk at all about religion. And and if you want a great example of of hollowed out generation and how radical individualism has captured their views of, of, of religion, it's not that my kids reject religion. It's that they don't know anything about it because the entire grammar of communication in religion, commandments, liturgies, sermonizing, is completely antithetical to their worldview. And so defend traditional aspirations. That's another thing that we can do. So, you know, that's kind of my basic analysis. And, and these are some of the things that we can do. But but yeah, we, we could go all day, my friend, no question. Well, I did want to bring up actually the the issue of, of, of religiosity, because one of the one of the mistakes I think that Christians make, because one of the things I think Christians don't realize is, is by and large, Christians are part of cohesive communities. They've got families, they've got churches, they have church communities. And to that extent, they're kind of insulated from some of the sort of the raw human rubble that the sexual revolution has wrought on the rest of society. And they aren't aware of the extent to which America is a post-Christian nation. I find that a lot of Christians, when they talk to secularists, when they talk to kids like the ones, the ones that you're referring to, have this idea that those around them, that these Americans have rejected Christianity. When the reality, as you put it, is just that most of them have never been taught it to begin with. And not only have they not rejected it, in, in most instances, especially in blue states, their parents didn't even reject it. It was their grandparents that first walked away um, from Christianity or just let it slowly die because it was always a cultural identifier rather than an actual faith. And this discussion is interesting timing. I'm, I'm currently analyzing actually a long report that was just published by the National Review examining different theories of secularization, like how did we lose God? Now, I think the best theory of secularization was put forward by Mary Aberstadt in her book, How the West Really Lost God, which has a lot to do with the sexual revolution and the breakdown of the family. But another theory, which I think comes alongside it, is they talked about how most of the culprits that were initially um, sort of pinpointed were not the reason for secularization. And that if you actually have to choose one culprit that has had the largest effect on it, it's government-run education. It's public education. The data is actually stunning when you look at the extent to which, even when you factor in the margin of error, this is like running away the greatest conclusion. And one of the things I really wanted to ask you in the context of that, because so you write about this in your book, there's this um, you know, essay in the National Review that basically retweets what, what you're saying and, and, and buttresses your point. And I know that there's a lot of conversations about, you know, all these, 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 these uprisings on the school boards, right? There's all these moms that are getting involved to push back against critical race theory, to push back against, you know, gender ideology, uh, pornographic how-to sex education and stuff like that. I just did an interview with, with J.D. Vance, who's running for the Senate in Ohio for the American Conservative, and he says he's really encouraged by all these parents who are getting involved on the grassroots level. But forgive my cynicism, part of me just thinks that you're not going to turn this ship around. And that you know, feeding your kids into this government machine for 40 whatever hours it is every week is more or less guaranteeing that you're not going to be able to offset that in your time at home. And so 
you as a teacher, as, as an educator who's, who's, who's done this for, for most of your life, what would you say to a parent who's just asking, can I send my kid to a public school? Should I find another option? Because for me, I know there's a lot of parents who say, but we can't really do that. There's this, there's that. But like, you know what? Like I got two kids. There's really n- nothing that I have going on in my life more important than making sure that these two humans turn out okay. And so, yeah, you know, you might have to give up on a job you want. There's a lot of things that you might have to sacrifice to make it happen, but there really isn't anything more important than our kids. So what would your advice to parents be? I do come at this from a, I'm a proud public teacher. And, you know, I, I read the same article. I think I, the, the brief version of it on National Review, I think it was like two days ago. And I was, I'll be honest, I was, I was kind of mystified by it, to be perfectly honest uh, with you. A few things I would say about it, though. The first thing is, you know, I'll be honest, I, as a public school teacher, I, I, I do think I do practice a pretty strict separation. I, it is really not my business what your religious background is. What bothers me in hollowed out, what, which kind of shakes the inner cockles of my being, is just how ignorant they are about it because they're rejecting something they don't understand. And, you know, I, I think in the 1980s, 2% of Americans said they were, you know, kind of no religion. Now it's 25%. Now I'm not that good at math, but I know that that's a ridiculously high percentage increase. And it's just simply, you know, my, my concern is not that kids embrace a certain religious tradition, but when you look at religion as an important part of human existence that has done more to give meaning and purpose and light a higher path of of why we're here and answering the big questions, to take that off the table. There's nothing that is not philosophy, not politics, not art. Nothing that can, can fill the void of religion in answering the big questions of why am I here? What am I supposed to do with this life? Where am I going? And the fact that young people want to take religion off the table as a way of at least thinking about these big questions. That is what truly, truly bothers me because the other thing it does is I I think that it's not being, it's not, you know, they're not reading the old Testament or, or, you know, the, the Quran or the Bhagavad Gita and rejecting it. They are simply, they see religion as something that is intruding upon their individual Liberty. This is a generation that, Everything is about choice, but they seem pretty indifferent about what choices they actually make as long as they have choice. They they truly are a kind of consumer culture where justice is about letting me do what I want to do and just make sure you don't judge me if you don't like my decision. It's a really weird metaphysical framework we exist in nowadays where people who object to your choices, even if they're objectively bad choices, are the bad guys simply because they have judgment about it. That's how backwards we are. I I remember, and I'll end with this, I I knew that something was really, really uh, out in left field a few years ago where we were talking, you know, at the end of the year, I do a quick little lesson in my world history classes about world religions. Like, you know, here's the basic teachings, here are the books, here are the founders, you know, you should know the basics. And somebody mentioned something about the afterlife. And, and there were a few students who believed, get this, I mean, if you want to talk about ego, if you want to talk about the almighty me, there were young people who truly believed that whatever you believed is what happens after you die. I mean, that is, that is beyond solipsism. That is making you into God himself. And I, at that point, I remember thinking, 
we are so far away, I can't even touch this in the classroom. Maybe I'll have to write a book about it someday. Sort of on a final note, because I really do want parents to understand how important this is, right? You know, you got pornography, which is destroying relationships en masse. 53% of U.S. divorce court cases cite pornography as one of the reasons for that divorce. But it's also like the scale it's like the the impact of the mistakes that that you can make. And parents used to shield their kids from the most dramatic consequences of mistakes until they were old enough to start making decisions for themselves. At which point, you know, they got pushed out of the tree and they had to fly. But like in the eighties, it was like you know, looking back at the pictures, like oh, I can't believe I had that haircut, right? Like you know, in the two thousands, I can't believe I listened to that music or you know, you know, dressed all gothic, etc. In, in, in the twenty twenties, there's going to be kids who are like, I can't believe I got a double mastectomy and had my penis cut off. Right. Like, like, I can't believe I started looking at toxic sexual material at age eight and it destroyed my ability to actually, you know, get excited is the wrong word. Like, you know, to have a relationship, to, 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 to have all of the innocent pleasures that come with the initial stages of a relationship, like the stakes are so much higher now. It's why I say that with smartphones, like, you know, like half of the kids, you know, transitioning to a different gender, you know, are watching YouTube tutorials by trans kids, right? Like that's, you're giving them the capacity to destroy themselves literally, physically. What would you say to a parent who th- thinks, my kid's going to be fine, they're going to turn out okay? You've been researching this for years now. So uh, kind of close it off with a direct warning to parents who have their head buried so far on the sand they can't hear the roar above them. Your children are light years ahead of you is what I would say. And, and the only solution to that is if a child has a starship that is far in front of you, you got, you, got to, you, got, you got to get a different starship or you got to take theirs away. And you have to know exactly where their ship is going. Look, if anybody thinks that Hollowed Out is a book filled with easy solutions and that, oh, well, you just simply need to do this or do that, it's not. There's not an app for that? No, no there's no app. There's no shortcut. The things in life that are meaningful are the things that are hard. And when I think about all the things that make my life meaningful, being a father, being a husband, being a teacher, being a Christian, being an American, being, you know, a a friend, there are a lot of times, especially on the parenting, because I have teenage daughters, it's profoundly hard. And it's not that I don't, it's not about knowledge. We know what to do, but there's a big difference between knowing I'm full versus saying, you know what, the cheesecake is available, but I'm just going to say no anyhow. There's a big difference. You know, as we all know, virtue is not about knowledge. It's about habit. And we have to change our habits. Finally, uh, where can people uh, buy the book? I hope this discussion has turned people on to the idea of, of getting a book that, that has some, some great data, some good guidance, and a lot of, of, of really interesting and illustrative anecdotes. Where can people get uh, your book? Hollowed Out is uh, coming out on August 3rd. I don't know when this podcast is going to drop, uh, but it's going to be available everywhere uh, August 3rd. Uh, it is... It is a book. Let me just say this. My hope, my dream is I don't want people to think of this as necessarily a conservative book. It's only conservative in the sense that we should conserve the values and the behaviors that lead to a joyful and good life and the maintenance of, 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 the, of liberal democracy. But other than that, this is a book that every parent, every educator, anybody who cares about the, you know, essentially the trajectory of our civilization should read. So again, go to Barnes & Noble, go to your local bookstore, go to Amazon, go wherever you want, Kindle whatever you want, however you want to read it. Uh, If you want to listen to it, it's available that way as well. But please take a listen. Please read it and please share it. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for taking the time to have this discussion.
Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Jeremy S. Adams, the author of the recent book, Hollowed Out, A Warning About America's Next Generation. Those of you who are listening, if you're interested in finding out more information about how to raise your kids in this new culture, what's going on in this culture, do head over uh, to lifesightnews.com, click on the podcast tab and subscribe. We've had conversations with educators who discuss how to porn-proof your home, how to talk about porn to your kids, how to actually manage the technology use. We've had experts, we've had academics, we've had authors come on the show and have these discussions with us. So if you're interested in any of that, please do head over and subscribe to keep track of this podcast. Thanks so much for listening this week. We really do appreciate your time. Have a great week and we hope you'll join us again next week.